together. Let's pray as we open the word of the Lord. Father God, as we turn to your word and we turn to this man from ancient history whose life still lives for us in your living word and whose problems are so relatable to us because of this world in which we live, we ask that you would speak to us. As you spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, we pray that you would speak to us out of your word and your spirit today. We come to you as people who desire to be faith-filled and patiently enduring, but we also come to you as people who face problems, and we ask, Lord, for your help, and we pray, Lord, for your will and kingdom to come and be done, and we pray, Lord, that we would have that spirit that says, no matter what comes, even death, still we will worship you, praising your name and trusting in you. In the very name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. People. Derek had a dream. From an early age, he had a sense of ambition for a particular career. It doesn't matter so much what it was. What matters is that he knew he wanted to do it, and he knew he would be good at it. In fact, even throughout school, he had teachers who said, you're really gifted in that area. You could pursue that as a career. And so throughout his education, even into college, he went along those lines. And in his 20s, he was eagerly awaiting that opportunity when that career would really flourish. He pursued it and tried for it, but it seemed like more doors closed to him than opened, even though he had that aptitude and that training. And he wondered why. And at the same time, other doors seemed to open into other arenas of opportunities. And there was nothing wrong with those. It's just that they weren't the dream. Now, Derek happened to be a believer, and so he wondered, why is it that God seems to be opening the wrong doors and closing all the ones that I want open? Derek had a dream, and he didn't understand why by the time 30 was looming in front of him, it was still only a dream and not a reality. How long would he have to wait, or was he looking in the wrong direction? Bill and Tina had a hope. Bill and Tina had an expectation that God would grant unto them a child. But the longer that they tried, the longer that they waited. They were young, they were healthy. They were both believers, they prayed. They invited friends at their church to pray for them and with them. They went and met with the pastor and asked him to lay hands on them and anoint them. They considered carefully what maybe they were doing wrong. They saw doctors. They took tests. There was no physical reason why they couldn't conceive. They loved each other. But nothing happened except that the clock kept ticking and time went on. And as time went on, it was harder and harder to keep praying. And not just to keep praying for what they were hoping for, which was a child, but to keep praying and hoping for anything at all. In fact, when they would come into the sanctuary, Tina would find herself growing increasingly resentful. I don't want to praise God because God isn't giving me the thing that I'm asking for. It was hard for her to hear stories about women in the scriptures who weren't able to conceive because those stories all seemed to end with a miracle for them that wasn't coming for her. And Bill, Bill began to feel guilty and pressured. 
It was as though it was his fault in Tina's eyes. She said she didn't look at him that way, but he felt that that was the way she was looking at him. And sometimes he wondered, is this because when we were first dating, I wasn't exactly faithful to her? Something that Tina knew, something that they had dealt with. He had repented. There was forgiveness, but he wondered, is this the penalty? Is this the cost? And if so, is there any way that I can pay it? Abby had a wish, and her wish was, even if she could never have a child, at least could she have a husband. She also was a faithful woman of God in the church. She also asked for prayer from her friends and the people around her. Help me to find the right man. But now, she wasn't just past her 20s and 30s. She was past 50, never married. She had had meaningful relationships for some length of time with various men, most of them believers, none of them quite ready to commit, none of them quite right. And sometimes she wondered, am I being too picky? Am I being too choosy? But other times she came very close to committing to someone who it was quite clear it was not a good fit. And so she was cautious and she was weary and she was lonely. She felt ostracized in the church. Every event seemed to be geared towards families and couples but what about her? When she went to singles gatherings, they were all people that were 20 or 30 years younger than her. She didn't have very much in common with them except that they felt like they were the leftovers. And so Abby's wish was turning into a grief. But maybe if she had known the kind of marriage that Rick and Beth had, she wouldn't have been so disappointed because Rick and Beth had a problem. And the problem was they couldn't stand each other. They had children together, they had a life together, they had decades together, but they had grown further and further apart. They didn't seem to be able to communicate. They argued. They had different ideas about money. Rick was a spender and Beth was a saver. And both of those things could be good, but they always seemed to be at odds about when was the right time to spend and when was the right time to save. They had different ideas about how to raise the kids. And they also just had different schedules and timelines. And it seemed to be tearing their marriage apart. And even a greater problem with that was that Beth had a new supervisor at work who was such a nice guy. And he was so understanding. And he noticed, because he would ask about her, by the way. He would say, you're looking a little down today. Something that she would readily say, Rick never did. Rick couldn't care less. How I look, she would say. And meanwhile, Rick would think, why would I say anything to you about it? You bite my head off. But here at work, the manager understood her. He took time with her. He seemed to care. And so she started to talk with him about the problems that she was having with Rick. And it became another problem. Because not only now was she growing away from Rick, but she found herself growing closer to this man. And she knew their marriage was in trouble. Raimondo and Gina had loss. They had a good marriage. They loved each other. They did have a child. But on the very day that the child was born, he died. The pregnancy had been normal. There had been no indicators of any problems. But at the 11th hour during the delivery, it became clear that this child was not going to survive 24 hours. And they didn't know how they were going to go on living. 
when they came home from the hospital and saw the room full of all the gifts that had been given at that wonderful baby shower with the new crib and the freshly painted walls, Gina and Raimondo collapsed onto the floor in each other's arms, racked with pain and grief. And they would admit in their hearts there was anger with God. Why would you allow this? Ariana and Vincent had a crisis. Vincent had lost his job. Ariana had been a stay-at-home mom. And even though she was trying to find work, she wasn't able to find the kind of work that could help them to hold on to their house. They fell behind on their mortgage months and months. They received the foreclosure notices. And all the pressure and stress was making it harder for Vincent to find a job and for uh, Ariana to do her work and to care for the kids. And their relationship came under the incredible burden of bills and collectors and notices. And they were wondering, why is it that God allowed this to happen to us? Vincent was a good worker. He wasn't fired for cause. He was laid off. And he was too old in his field to be able to find the kind of work that he needed, or at least that was his idea. All of these people were in trouble. They had problems, and they needed God. But all of them were already believers. Now, if you're somebody who isn't walking with the Lord and you say, hey, I've got problems too, how come you're talking about believers? How come you're talking about people who know the Lord? Because that's what today's message is particularly about, which doesn't mean that if you don't know the Lord, there isn't a word here for you. But sometimes people on the outside of Christian faith look at people on the inside of Christian faith and say, why would I follow that path when in the end, life is the same? Everybody's got troubles. You know, there are as many divorces in the church as outside of it. Actually, that's not true anymore. The statistic changed. Last I looked, there are more divorces in the church than outside of it. Yeah, that's bad news. It's probably because there are fewer marriages outside of the church. So there's a little secret in the numbers there. But nevertheless, being believers and churchgoers doesn't mean that marriage sustains. And in any case, there's disease, there's divorce, there's depression, there's debt, there's lost jobs, there's unanswered prayers, or so it seems, there's dashed hopes. Every single person in this list is basically a real person. The names have all been changed. And in some instances, in fact, most, many of the details have been changed. But the crux of the issues are the same. But maybe I didn't touch on your issue, or maybe I did. The point is, people need the Lord. Remember that old song? And yet, in the Lord, we need patience. Because every single one of these issues revolves around a situation in which people were already calling out to the Lord, in which people were already praying to the Lord, but there didn't seem to be the kind of answer they were looking for. And it made them question, where is the compassion of God? Doesn't he care? Why am I having to hurt like this? The other issue is that over and over again in these situations, people seem to stumble across the prospect that maybe God is trying to test them or teach them but that's a very unpleasant prospect when you are in the middle of grief and pain. And then there's a third issue, which is the people around them, us, who are supposed to be helpful, often end up being more hurtful. 
And all of these things remind us of the kinds of people of patience that we meet in the scriptures. Over the coming weeks, we are going to look at just a few, a smattering of a few of the people of patience. Really, the Bible is full of patient people whose faithful patience pays off. But it's not full of Pollyanna types who just go trippingly along the lovely path of uh, primrose pink, delighting in every good uh, part of life and not facing any troubles. No, it is in fact filled with people who have lots of problems and sometimes they are the author of their own problems. In fact, very often they are the author of their own problems. But in any case, what we see is that their patience comes from God. Will you say that? Patience comes from God. And the kind of patience I'm talking about, and you know, because we've been looking at patience throughout this year of patience, as the Lord has told us it is, is not just waiting and sort of twiddling the thumbs, but the kind of focused, empowered, clear-minded, open-hearted, fully resourced faith that perseveres, that sustains. That comes from God. So we'll be looking today at Job and next week at Esther, Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, who spent long time in prison in Egypt, Jesus. There are so many ways in which Jesus demonstrates patience, but the one we're going to look at cues to the season that we are in, the Jesus who has already been resurrected, and yet it is at a time before the season of Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit. And Jesus, in speaking to disciples on the road to Emmaus, describes for them the kind of patience that you and I can receive from the Lord as we read the word with open eyes and an informed spirit. Paul, the apostle, imprisoned. Again, another figure full of patient examples, but we will look at the years that he spent awaiting trial before Caesar. John, on the island of Patmos, receiving the, res the revelation of the resurrected Christ. And finally, we will end our series with Hannah. Now, you may have noticed that basically I'm trying to go in something like a chronological order. There's a little bit of, uh, of uh, adjustment to that. I thought Esther would be a good figure to look at on Mother's Day weekend, and next weekend is Mother's Day weekend, so why not look at a queen in the scriptures who was born for such a time as this? Um, but when it comes to Hannah, the reason why I'm putting this Old Testament figure, this woman from the era of the judges, at the very end of our series is because she's the very beginning of what we'll be studying next, which is the story of Samuel, one of the great judges of Israel, who is also one of the great prophets of Israel, who ultimately anointed the first kings of Israel. So it'll be a great little uh, bridge into our next series. But today, Job and the patience of Job in the whirlwind of woes, because Job is at the center of a cyclone of problems. And what is particularly important in the study of Job is that the problems are not Job's fault. So let's recognize that all of us can see how there are things that we do in our lives or there are ways in which human beings can sin that produce all kinds of problems. Yes, we would acknowledge that. And that, in fact, is the Deuteronomistic notion. When we've studied in the book of Judges, as we did last year, we saw the Judges cycle. When people were following the Lord and being faithful, God said, I'll be with you, I will protect you. But if you turn away from me, 
to idolatry and to evil, you're going to invite trouble into your life. And that would happen and then they would call out to the Lord. But Job is not in that cycle. In fact, Job is not even in Israel. We might wonder when Job does occur, and I'll speak to that in a moment. But most importantly, what the book of Job makes clear for us, at least certainly at the outset, and I would argue throughout it, is that it isn't Job's fault. Job's not doing anything wrong. Now, this is not to say that Job is perfect. Everyone except for Christ himself has sinned. It is to say that Job was not guilty of having failed to serve the Lord. Job had not turned his heart or his eyes away from the Lord. In fact, what is remarkable perhaps about Job is even in the depth of his very human and relatable suffering in the whirlwind of woes, he remains a worshiper of God. Even though he slays me, yet will I praise him. And so Job helps us to consider a certain kind of reality in people's lives. When I am talking about today is not primarily problems that are a result of our mistakes, but what do we do when things go wrong in our world and it seems that there's no one to blame or it might be that the only one we can think to blame would be God himself. The insurance agency uh, still utilizes the phrase act of God for events like earthquakes and hurricanes that cannot be ascribed to any human being. And so we ascribe them to God. And so is it God that is sending such hardship into Job's life or yours or mine? Well, let's see what the book has to say. And in doing so, let's make some initial observations about the book as a whole. I've got a bit of work cut out for me in the sense that I'm going to try and give you an overview of a rather lengthy book. So we're not going to spend very much time looking at the text. We're going to be spending more time looking at its structure, its themes, and what is the message of the book. And in doing that, we can pretty much summarize the basic thrust of the book of Job pretty quickly. Job, first of all, is a righteous man. So turn to the person next to you and say, Job was a good guy. By the way, the Bible treats Job as a real figure. The New Testament refers to him as a historical person. It is sometimes popular to presume that Job is purely a literary work, and I don't think that that is impossible because even the New Testament uh, references to Job could be read from that interpretation. But it doesn't seem to be the initial uh, um, presentation of Job. The traditional way of looking at him is that this is a real person, but it's almost certain that even if he is a real figure, his story has been streamlined in a literary way to help you and I understand the point of it. And if it is a fictional story, it is at the very least cobbled together like my fictional stories from real people and real situations. So Job was a righteous man. That's how the book begins. And God actually commends him. And he commends him to none other than Satan, the devil, the enemy. Now Satan obtains permission from God. Here's one of the big problems. If Satan was coming in like a thief, as we are told that he is, and doing these things to Job without permission, and it was simply Job's weakness, then maybe we could still lay it at the foot of God and say, well, you're stronger than either of them, so shouldn't you be protecting Job? But God has gone one step further. He's invited Satan into this situation, and he's called Satan's attention to Job, and then he gives Satan the permission successively. It happens in phases. 
It does seem as though all of these problems come pretty rapidly, but there is a little bit of uh, a progression. First, there is death and destruction and loss around Job because God says you can do anything you want around him, just don't touch him. And then finally, when Satan comes back, because Job has remained relatively faithful, although he is hurting, and Satan says, well, you know, this is because you're not letting me touch him. Then God says, all right, you can afflict him. He can get sick, but you can't kill him. I would rather that God would say, leave him alone, right? In fact, why doesn't God just kill Satan? In fact, if God's the creator, why did he create him? Ah, uh, we have problems here. But let's get back to Job because Job is like, enough about your problems. What about me? So Job loses nearly everything or suffers dire affliction in it, in his possessions, in his family relations, his health, his reputation. He's grieving. He's confused. He then is surrounded by friends. And these are not fair-weather friends as they are sometimes uh, described. They sit with him for a week in silence. That's pretty compassionate, pretty dedicated. And it shows you the depth of the situation. Have you ever been with somebody where you just didn't know what to say? You know, if somebody loses a child, what are you going to say to them? Is there anything you can say? Sometimes people are so horrified by the prospect of that that they will actually isolate from that person because they think, I can't bear to see them because I don't know what to say. And people who are in that situation, believe me, they can see it on your face. It's true. They will come and say, nobody knows what to say to me. I know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say to them either. But sometimes sitting in silence with someone is a way of helping. Sometimes. However, when the silence is broken, ultimately with Job's friends, it doesn't seem to be so helpful after all. They presume that there are ways in which he's been wrong. They are operating from that ancient world belief system that we still carry over in many ways into our modern thinking, which is basically if something has gone wrong, someone's responsible for it. Somebody did wrong. And so if everything is if you're at the center of this whirlwind of woes, Job, guess who done wrong? It must be you. We can just deductively reason that. And so somewhere you made a mistake, somewhere you're doing it wrong, some wrong belief or theological stance or action or behavior or hidden sin. But Job, who is not proud or vain, he's not saying he's perfect, but Job says, no, 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 I, that's not true. I haven't engaged in idolatry. I haven't turned away from the Lord. I've done according to what God has asked of me. For those of you who are uh, in PSOM with me and we're studying the minor prophets, you remember what we saw in Micah last week? What does the Lord ask of you, O oh man, right? Just that you, that you do rightly, that you love justice, that you show mercy, that you walk with God. And Job says, I've done all of that. And so you're wrong, you guys, that that are saying to me, God wouldn't allow this to happen to a good person? He has. Ultimately, God speaks to Job. Oh, this is the good part, right? Now we're going to get the answers. Except that when God shows up, he's in the whirlwind. It's a theophany, an appearance of God in Scripture. And often when God appears in Scripture, it isn't happiness and butterflies. It's a storm. 
clouds, thunder, lightning. Remember when the nation of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai in the wilderness? They had been delivered by God. The Passover had occurred. The waters had parted. Now they're going to come face to face with God. And God says, stand back. Don't touch the mountain. You'll die. I'm coming down to be with you. And when I do, it's a storm. God comes right into the midst of Job and his friends in the whirlwind. And it's out of the whirlwind that God speaks. And God doesn't say, well, let me explain it all to you. God says, you explain it to me. You tell me. You explain creation and right and wrong to me. Why don't you? You get in a sense that God, not being cruel, is mindful that after all, he is the one who said, to us in the garden at the beginning, Genesis 3, you can eat from all the trees that I've planted here in this garden except for the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That you should not eat because in the day that you eat of it, you'll die. And so here is God talking to a son of one of those who ate of that, saying, you know so much about good and evil now, explain it to me. You know so much about the world. How was it made? How were its foundations poured? Who... Who held the plumb line of the earth? Who filled its, its body with water and cloaked it in clouds and populated it with creatures you can't even find under the sea and you can't even meet on the mountain and you can't even face on the plains? Who is it that taught the birds to fly and sends the wind and holds the tides so that they go thus far and no farther? Can you explain that? Do you know who you are dealing with? And that's God's answer. And that's not very satisfying to most of us. But it is to Job. Because Job was a person of patience. And he heartily worships God again. And God affirms his commendation of Job at the expense of his friends whom God is not so pleased with. These apparently religious guys who were getting it wrong, even though what they were saying wasn't wrong, it just didn't apply in most cases to what was going on with Job. And it is God who restores Job's fortunes and doubles them up. For these reasons, Job is typically seen as what's called a theodicy. And it's not unique to the Bible. Most cultures develop their theodicies. And especially in the ancient world, we have many examples of this. A theodicy is an effort basically to explain the existence of evil in the creation of an apparently or ostensibly all good God. In other words, if God is good, why is there evil? Theodicy is an effort to grapple with that. Why do bad things happen to good people? If God is all-powerful, then isn't he ultimately responsible so that if there is evil or suffering going on, it's up to him to address that? Why is there pain? How do we answer the problem of the existence of pain if God is compassionate and good? And how should people of faith treat one another when there are circumstances in which it might make us think that the problems that people are having are their own fault? or a reflection of some unconfessed or unresolved or unrevealed depravity. These are the issues of theodicy, but the problem is that the book of Job does not address these in any systematic way, and in fact, some would argue that the book of Job ultimately doesn't address them at all. It sort of does half the job. It raises them and then leaves them. 
But I don't think it is half the job in the sense of what Job is supposed to be doing. It's God offering the job to you and I. Oh, that's pretty good, isn't it? God offers us the job of understanding these things through the book of Job and the life of Job. In other words, we are being called to consider how do we answer them? So how do you answer those things? Sometimes we simply don't think about them. And you know what those times are? Those are usually good times. Good times, I don't need to really answer that. Now, some people are of the mindset that want to, and some people are of the mindset that don't. But when bad times come, almost everybody begins to grapple with these. It might be wise to consider them without having to be in the middle of the whirlwind of woes, because one thing is certain, sooner or later, problems are going to come. I think I'm having one right now, which is that my controller isn't working. Maybe Pastor Henji can run to the booth for me. Or maybe if I just, let me see if this does anything. That's my technological skill. Take the batteries out. Unplug it. Worked yesterday with the printer, so unplug it, plug it back in. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's a, there's a hidden presumption there. It may not be altogether that hidden, but it is worth us taking a look at, which is, who are these good people? Is there such a thing as a good person? The scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray. The scripture relates that all of us have sinned. But the issue that's really being dealt with here in Job is not whether there are good people or bad people. It is not inconsistent with the Christian perspective that all people are in need of the redemption of God. But rather, what is in focus here is why do certain bad things happen to people who have dedicated themselves to following God? Now, that is a slightly different question, and it's one that not the entire world is necessarily interested in. The whole world is interested in why do bad things happen to good people? But the scripture that we're looking at is particularly concerned with why do things like this happen to people who have already dedicated themselves to the Lord? If you're having issue with it, you can just move the slides on for me. It's fine. So these are the questions that the major players in the book of Job are looking to speak to or answer. We've already seen that the, the key figures initially are Job himself and God and Satan. And then there's these friends that I mentioned. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naathamite. Well, don't worry, we're not going to be talking about them by name too much. Those names don't necessarily flow easily off the tongue. But what we uh, might notice here is that initially we have three who are basically peers of Job. They seem to be much like Job in the sense of they're likely of a similar kind of affluence. They seem to be elders and respected leaders in the society. And they have been, would appear, close with him. The beginning of the book, they are referred to specifically as friends, as the book progresses, they're not referred to in such friendly terms. Then there's a fourth speaker, ultimately, which is Elihu. He is younger than the others. He's a young man, and that brashness comes through. He's sort of idealistic, and he's maybe got a little bit better of a perspective uh, rather than the legalistic, critical tone that we find in the first three. But he also has some misconceptions, ultimately, about what's going on with Job, although he maybe adds some valuable things. And I want to say something about all of these, which is when you go through the book of Job, the great bulk of the book consists of discussions between them, 
And there's lots of beautiful poetry and wonderful insight in what these people say. So it's kind of problematic. Sometimes people will quote something out of Job, and you go, that's a great quote. And then you go, oh, but it came out of the mouth of Bildad or Zophar, and these guys end up getting critiqued by God. So maybe I should ignore that. Not necessarily. Much of what they say is not wrong. It's just not right. Hmm. What's the difference with that? In other words, much of what they are saying reflects things, now not all of it, I'm sure we could go through, and we're not going to do this, but we could go through and find some things that are overtly wrong, but there are many things they say there that are poetic, beautiful, and basically true. In fact, in a way, it's kind of like the Lord, even in the Word, is giving us a microcosm of a lot of what the rest of Scripture reflects, which is... You can choose life or death. You can choose blessing or cursing. You can choose to follow the Lord or not. And if you follow the Lord, there is a pathway of blessing that the Lord will take you on. And if you, if you refuse the Lord, it's going to bring cursing into your life. But like other wisdom literature, for instance, like the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job helps remind us it doesn't always work out perfectly and cleanly that way. Sometimes good people going in the right direction encounter worse situations. Sometimes people who are clearly wicked continue in their wickedness and nobody seems to be stopping them at all. And so these guys don't seem to be prepared to handle that. And they also don't seem to consider that it is possible that someone could be suffering for reasons other than their own fault. And so Job provides us with some valuable reflection on that. Can we see the next slide? As we look at the structure of Job, You'll see, as I mentioned, that this is the big bulk. Take me to the next uh, few slides. Just bring that whole, yeah, and that one. Perfect stuff there, Pete. So we, we start with an introduction that Job is righteous. And then we see that Satan challenges him and Job is suffering. And then that's when we get lots of discussion in these first uh, chapters, Job giving vent to his despair. It's worth reading. In the same way that the Psalms can sometimes be a kind of balm to the soul if you're having hard times, read Job chapter 3. You might hear yourself reflected in it. Sometimes misery does love just a little bit of company. Maybe God has given us in Job someone willing and ready to sit with us when we feel like we are in the whirlwind of woes. Then we get these theological debates, basically, that I've described. And then Job really sticking to his guns and ultimately saying, you're all telling me the same religious stuff that I always hear, but bottom line is, I, know, I believe God is good and I want to serve him, but I don't know why he's allowing this to happen. And finally, then Elihu, the younger man, says, well, I got to speak up. I'll tell you a few reasons why. And he says some worthy things, but he doesn't get to the crux of it. That comes in God's address from the whirlwind in the closing chapters, 38 through 41, when he makes this extraordinary presentation of himself and basically says, I'm God and you're not. And that's my answer to you. And then Job has his conclusion. He responds with reverence to God for that and repentance. And God says to the friends of Job, I'm not very pleased with you. You've said things about me that weren't true. And Job has remained true. I'm going to ask him to pray for you. And he does. And God forgives them because of Job's prayer. And there is restoration for Job himself. Next slide. So what are God's purposes in the book of Job? Thank you, sir. There's a theologian named Norm Geisler 
who has written uh, somewhat extensively on the book of Job, and he identifies three central divine purposes. Why do we have this book? Historical, doctrinal, and Christological purposes at work. For one thing, the book of Job provides a kind of biblical court record for us of how the wise and righteous should respond to sorrow in our life when there doesn't seem to be any reasonable expectation of it. And this is helpful for us if we recognize that these are real people, or at the very least, these are people dealing with real people problems, like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Job reminds us, Mr. Geisler says, that God's people of his providential, uh, excuse me, God, Job reminds God's people of his providential purposes in allowing their pain. In other words, God is not denying that there are certain things that bring us pain, but God is saying, if I've allowed it, there's a purpose in it. It's not that his purpose is to cause us pain. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily the source of our pain. That it means that he can use our pain as a part of his providential plan to purify and perfect his people and their faith. So here is a doctrinal rationale, which is it helps us to better understand who God is. You see, that's what's happening in the whirlwind. God is showing up. Many theodicies try to present reasons that would make us say, it's okay for there to be pain in my life because it's reasonable for this purpose. But that puts us in the role of judge. And what God does when he shows up is says, here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. And he walks in to what is his court. And he says, I'm the judge and you're not. So the answer is, I'm here. I care. The very fact that God sees, knows, responds is a theological evidence of his purpose and care. But if you really want to see what God has to say about the things that break and ruin people's lives, see him on the cross. Because in Job, there is a Christological insight that we get into the theological nature of Christ. That's what Christological means, just theologically about the Messiah, our anointed Savior Jesus. Even though Job comes in the history of humanity much earlier than when Jesus was born, probably 1,500 years, it's hard to say when Job was written. The style of it seems to reflect the era of the patriarchs. Some people think that Moses wrote the book or maybe Solomon. We don't know who the author was, but it's an old book and it was before the time of Jesus' incarnation. And yet, it is not before Christ. Because Christ is the creator who is and always is. The very Holy Spirit of Christ inspired Job. And in this text, he gives us clues about who Christ is. In other words, not only do we have in Job someone suffering with us, but we have a picture of the one who suffered for us. And that's Jesus. So you cannot complain to God, why do you allow so much suffering when he took all of the suffering upon himself? And he did not have to. He was righteous. If Job was righteous, how much more righteous is Christ? But he who knew no sin became a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as the prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah, and as you and I can see in order to be our mediator, our redeemer. Remember how God says, Job, pray for these who got it wrong about me. 
Guess who's praying for you? Someone better than Job. Christ Jesus. Interceding for you and I in the heavenlies. That's the whirlwind's voice that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I want to come to the concluding segments here, and we're going to take communion in just a few moments. And look at some takeaways about these three major figures. The man called Job, the devil in the details of this book, and the God who speaks out of the whirlwind. As I mentioned, the very book begins by saying that Job is blameless and upright. Who is Job, this man who feared God and shunned evil? Do you know that the word Job, the name, means hated? Well, <laughs> remember when we were studying in the book of Ruth and Naomi said, don't call me Naomi anymore, it means pleasant. Call me Mara, it means bitter. How about if your parents named you hated? Oh, have you seen little hated? He's just been born. Boy, you don't like that kid, huh? Did you name him after you started hearing the crying or what? Why would anyone name their child hated? We can only speculate. It's actually an unusual kind of name. It's derived from a Hebrew root verb, which means hostility toward an enemy. And the only place that that root word is used in Scripture is in the Exodus, in a passage where God says, take a speed pill. I don't know what that was. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to look it up. Can somebody bring that up for me? Because I don't have Exodus 22, whatever, memorized. Uh, but the Lord is speaking to his people there. It is uh, obviously during the time when they're in the wilderness. And he's making that very kind of Deuteronomistic statement, which is, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, then do I have power here again? Yeah. Apparently, the, the Satan said, can I play with the Courtney's thing today? And uh, the Lord said, yeah, just don't touch him. Well, there's a purpose in it. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, um, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way. Who is the angel? It's the angel of the Lord that appears as cloud, pillar of smoke and fire. That's a Christophany. In other words, the Lord himself is going before them. How do I know that? Because he says, he has my name in him. And what is the name of the Lord? I am. It's the very name that Jesus refers to himself as seven times in the book of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the light of the world. It's the I am that is leading the children of Israel. And God says, listen to my son. Listen to him. Don't rebel against him. If you listen carefully to him and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Say adversary. adversary. Say enemy. Okay, remember that. There's a way in which the word enemy can be good, and that is if the greatest good, which is God, is an enemy of your enemies. Now, I understand Jesus said, love your enemies. Here, we are talking about the enemy of your soul, the one who comes and says, I want to afflict him. And God says, I'll allow it, but if you're the enemy of my servant Job, you're the enemy of me. And I will be an enemy of you. Perhaps Job was named for that. God has hated our enemies, the enemy of our soul. And Job is a reminder that no matter how much the enemy tries to touch you, he cannot take you out of the love of the Lord. It's from the land called Uz. Uz means wooded or soft sandy earth. We don't really know where it is. Perhaps somewhere in Arabia. It's apparently east of Israel. 
You can go back in the scriptures and see where there's a man named Uz who's born a, um, a son, a grandson of Shem. Uh, the point that's probably most important here is Job's a Gentile. He's not a Jewish person. In fact, he's probably living before the establishment even of national Israel, I mean, almost certainly, but maybe even before the establishment of the family of Israel, so to speak, um, through, uh, uh, through Abraham. In any case, he is considered one of the prophets of the Gentiles, even by rabbinic scholars in Scripture. Here's his wealth. He had ten children, seven sons, three daughters. He is faithful. He prays for them. He fasts for them. He makes sacrifices for them. He's got a lot of wealth, but he's not a bad rich guy. You have to say that nowadays. Boy, anybody that's rich, they're like the enemy. Uh, but God says Job's a good guy. That's where his wealth has come from, from the Lord. Lots of cattle and sheep and servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East, according to Job 1.3. And yet, what's most um, pronounced about him and revered about him in the scripture is even when he loses all of that, all of his children die, all of his livestock are ruined, his property is lost, his wealth is lost, his reputation is lost. Ultimately, he gets sick sitting on an ash heap, on a dung heap, scraping himself with the shards of pots because he has boils all over his skin. And his wife says, just curse God and die. But he doesn't. He remains, even in the midst of his remarkably raw, genuine human grief and sorrow, a faithful worshiper. He says the kinds of things that you and I can relate to, and God doesn't hold it against him. He says, why, why was I ever born? Why didn't I die at birth? Have you ever had that kind of thought? I've had that kind of thought. It's not a good thought. It's not a thought that reflects the, the, the truth of God, but God understands it. He says, every day all I eat is sighs. My groans pour out of me like water, or maybe like Christ, like blood and water mingled. What fear has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest. Is that you today? Maybe you need the patience of Job. Maybe you need the faith of Job. Job fell to the ground in worship when he heard that all of his children were killed, and all of his livestock were lost, and all of his wealth had been canceled. And he said, well, I've lost it all. I came into this world naked, and I'll go out of it naked. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I will still praise him. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with the wrongdoing. You see, what Job didn't say was, why did God do this? He said, well, God allowed it, and it's up to God to do, but it's not, I'm not going to blame God for it. His wife said to him... Uh, let me put it in a paraphrase. Are you an idiot? <laughs> she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Are you still going on with that stuff, that religious stuff? You're going to talk about the Bible and God and Jesus? I know I'm being anachronistic, but you get the point. Why don't you just curse God and die? Literally, the Hebrew says, why don't you bless God and die? It's a euphemism. We know what she's saying. God bless it. Why don't you just give it up and die? He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. This is not misogynistic, by the way. He's saying, you're talking like a woman who is foolish, just like you could be a man who is foolish. Actually, the wisdom literature of which the book of Job is a great cornerstone is maybe most marked for how it presents wisdom as the spirit of God in feminine terms. So there is nothing about uh, her womanness that makes her foolish. There's nothing about God, uh, Job's maleness that makes him more faithful. The point is, Anybody, man or woman, can be foolish or can be faithful. And the way to be faithful is to focus 
on God. And Job says, should we accept the good from God and not the bad? Many of us might say, yeah, we should. But Job says, that's not wise. And Job did not sin. So who's the devil in the details? Because Job is doing everything right and everything is still going wrong for him. The devil is the accuser or adversary. Remember I, I wanted you to say adversary? Say it again. Adversary. Say enemy again. Enemy. Look at this. Two of the main characters in the story have the same name, enemy. Job hated. Job hated the enemy because he loved God. The enemy hated Job because the enemy hated God. The adversary of your soul is opposed to you not because of who you are. The devil hates you, hates you. I don't think you and I can comprehend the kind of violent, wrathful hatred the devil has for you. The very one who knows how to entice you, he hates you, but not because he cares a thing in the world about you. It's because he looks at you and sees God and God's care for you. The reason the devil hates you is because God loves you. And God loves you of who you are, not who you are in the flesh, who you were made to be. In the book of Job, Satan has a relationship with God that we might find confusing, even concerning. It says, one day the angels came and present themselves to the Lord, and Satan is with them. Oh, fine, Satan's with them. Sure, why not? Wait a minute, what? What is Satan doing there? Why would God even allow Satan into the midst? Well, here in this book, this very old book, Satan seems to be among these messengers of God, that is to say, among the angels, but he is one who has made himself an enemy of God. And it isn't a casual and friendly conversation that they're having. It is a court challenge. Why is it a court challenge and not a battle? Because Satan would lose the battle. There is no way he can face off against God and win. He tried and lost. So now he's trying to get around the loss. And he's coming to God and saying, I've been looking all over the earth. What is he looking for? You. Someone I can eat. Someone I can prey on. And God says, have you seen Job? Please don't bring my name up to Satan, right? Why does, why does God do that? God believes in Job. Satan is saying, there's nobody, these people don't, none of these people that you think serve you, they don't really serve you. You know what Satan's thinking? They serve me. And I know how to get them to serve me. And God says, how about Job? And Satan says, all right, yeah, sure, Job. Oh, yeah, he's rich. He's got kids. I'll tell you what, you let me get at him and I'll show you how quickly he'll turn. And God says, you think so? You can't touch him, but do what you want with what he has. What about Job's children? Friends, you and I aren't going to be able to understand what God understands, but I'll tell you something. God knows the scope and span of every life, and it's up to him to determine the length of our days. Bad things happen, but God is good. So God is the one who claims that Job is worthy and seems to draw him into the sights of Satan. But Satan was already looking for Job. 
Peter says, your enemy prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm because everyone in the family of believers throughout the world is going through sufferings. You're not the only one in the middle of the whirlwind of woes. And even if you are in the middle of troubles, even as you are walking in the faith, don't give up the faith. The troubles will not last forever, but your faith will. Now, these things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, and God is love. So hold on to what is eternal because the suffering is passing away. Don't give up your grasp of the eternal to go chasing after that which you cannot hold on to anyway. Jesus said, if you try and hold on to your life, you lose it. But if you're willing to let that go to me, I will give you my life and you'll keep it. God gives us more grace. You remember this from James that we studied earlier this year? That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud. The enemy is proud. God opposes him. He is the enemy of our enemy, but he shows favor to the humble. Job is humble and God elevates him. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. How can you resist the devil if the devil can't get close to you? So God wants you to show you that you can overcome the devil, that you can be more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves you. He wants you to see that the enemy is defeated. He wants you to know that even in the whirlwind of woes, there is the everlasting hope of God. At the end, God also shows how the devil was hiding in the details of bad doctrine and wrong theology. Because those friends of Job who were so dedicated to the scriptures as they thought or so dedicated to the ways of God, nevertheless had been deluded. God says, I'm angry with you and your friends because you did not speak the truth. In other words, you were speaking falsehoods about me. Where does falsehood come from? Jesus says the devil is a liar and he's the father of lies. So when people have really wrong ideas about who God is and what he does, I don't mean just none of us have a perfect understanding, but I mean when we get entrenched in thinking, well, if you're having problems, it's because you're a bad person, or I understand all about God and I'll tell you why it works this way or that, and you become absolutely imprisoned in that, you are actually imprisoned in the devil of those details. And the devil is using that to imprison you. But God, God shows up in a way that you might never expect in the middle of the whirlwind. Friends, I want to I say something to you as we come to uh, communion. Here is the Lord in the middle of our midst. I'm going to ask if those who are serving would come and begin to distribute these. You at home. Just bring your, your elements before you, your cracker of bread, your cup, and hold it before you. Is there a storm in your life? Is there a problem in your life? Maybe you're thinking, I want to know what happened to those people at the beginning of the sermon. Some of them had a resolution, and some of them didn't. I know lots of couples who wanted a child, and the child didn't come, and the child didn't come, and then they prayed, and the child came. I know couples who wanted a child and ultimately adoption became the way in which God brought a child into their life. I know people who wanted a child and never got a child. And with all of those problems, the marriage in crisis, the home on the brink, I can give lots of examples of people 
who were delivered by God, but I can also give examples of faithful people who went to the far side of that problem and didn't see the solution. So the answer is, all kinds of things happen to all kinds of people. But let's talk about you. What is the storm in your life today? Would you be willing to realize that God is here, a theophany present among us? That in this bread of Jesus' body, broken for you and me, there is the voice of the Lord. And what he is saying is, here I am. Don't turn away from me. I've come to you. I've come for you. I want to speak to you through the storm. It may be that the problems you're having right now, even if they're no fault of your own, have a purpose if they allow you to encounter God at a moment when most people would turn away. If you've had a loss, if you're facing a choice and you don't know how to make it, if you're feeling fear, if you're dealing with anxiety, if you're suffering with a hope that's been deferred or delayed, I don't have the answer for you about those problems. I have the promise for you of the presence of the Lord. God is with you. He says to you, do you really understand what's going on in your life? Or are you willing to believe that I understand? And just to show you that I know what it is to be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, here is my body broken for you. Take it, eat it, and remember, I am with you. I am for you, not against you. I am not your enemy, but I am the enemy of the one who is your enemy. I'm the lover of your soul and I'm the savior of your life. Receive this bread and receive that promise. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus lifted up the cup to say this is the cup of a new covenant. In other words, when one of those who was among his closest brethren, one of the 12 who had lived with him like a brother, turned against him, he didn't deserve it. But the one who was supposed to be his friend ended up being his critic and accuser. And yet on that very night, Jesus lifted up a cup and said, here's a cup of forgiveness. Here's a cup of promise. Here's a cup of healing. In this cup, every loss you've ever experienced is more than doubled into a gain. In this cup, every bit of grief Every single death, every single trial and trouble and problem becomes washed away in the flow of life that is Christ. In this world, you and I have troubles. And Jesus doesn't say, I will take them away. What he says is, I will overcome them. And he has done that. And this cup is proof of it. Now drink it, and as you drink it, receive not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the infusion of hope and patient faith to believe no matter what I'm facing, I'm not facing it alone. Jesus is with me. He goes before me. I will trust in him. Amen. 
the Lord spoke to Job and Job heard it. And Job answered and said, I know that you can do everything. If you can die and rise again, if you can forgive all of my sin, if you can secure a place for me in eternity and even on the throne of God with you, then no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No weapon formed against you can prosper. Nothing can keep you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We count those blessed who endured, who stayed persistently faithful because of God. James said, you have heard of the patience of Job and you have seen the outcome and you know the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The Lord loves you. He is for you. Walk with him, trust in him. And no matter what you see, keep on praising him. Even if death comes to you, remember your life is secure in the life of the Lord. I commend you to him now and forever in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.